not a, not a bunch of notice, but <laughs> just wanted to let you guys know they're they're joining us upstairs and. Yes, yes, Marcus too. Awesome, yes. So awesome, and we just want want to say welcome uh, to you. So uh, just know that uh, you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles though to Job chapter one, and that's where we're going to be at today, spending the majority of our time. Job chapter 1, it should be right after the book of Esther, somewhere right in the middle of your Bible. Today's talk is entitled, When All Hell Breaks Loose. It's subtitled, Learning Learning to Kiss the Wave. And I know that probably maybe doesn't make any sense, but I'll get to it in a second. When All Hell Breaks Loose, Learning to Kiss the Wave. So let's read, we're, we're starting in verse 6. Of, of Job, and I'll go ahead and read uh, down to verse 12, and then I'll jump down to verse 20 and 22. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around his house, around him and his house, and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And then jumping down to verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said... Naked I, have, I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall, return, shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Okay, let's pray. Father, there are times that we come, and we, we come to your word, and we see very, very, very dark portraits. And it's in this moment, it's in this time, Lord, it is your word. So may it shape us how you desire it to. God, may we not discount this book and may we not discount suffering and the purposes that you have in suffering. Help us, God, I pray now, by your spirit, to see and would you impart to us a proper attitude towards suffering. That, God, we would have the faith of Job, but we would also look to the one who has faith ultimately, then the Lord Jesus. Lord, help us now, we pray. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we saw, if you remember in the book of Job, we saw just the opening chapters kind of unpacking who Job was, but we also saw like a bigger overview, more of like a, a 30,000 foot view kind of. 
And today, like I said, is entitled, When All Hell Breaks Loose, Learning to Kiss the Wave. And that comes from a quote from Charles Spurgeon that he says this. He says, I have learned, this is what he says, I just want it to be before you, there it is. I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. What he means by that is it's the wave of affliction. It's the wave of, of suffering. And so if you're taking notes today, this is what I want you to see. It should be on your notes or your handout. Even when all hell breaks loose, trusting Christ allows us to kiss the wave that throws us against the rock of ages. Let me say that again. Even when all hell breaks loose, trusting Christ allows us to kiss the wave that throws us against the rock of ages. Now we're going to look in two, today's talk can really be divided into real, two, two real sections. And, and in Hebrew, typically, Hebrew authors are, are almost painting like scenes. That's how we need to view what they're doing here. And he starts, he, he moves scenes from what he talked about. So in, in chapter 5, we, we're on earth, we're here with Job. And that's one scene. And then he moves to more of a heavenly scene. Now we move to scene one. Scene one. God hands Job over to Satan. And we have some, uh, I just want to say on the front end, there's going to be more like heavy lifting on the front end, and I'm hope, hoping that will help us near the end. So scene one, God hands Job over to Satan. Look at verse six. He says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And I want us to look at, in this first section, and this is going to be some heavier lifting, but is how the world is governed. How the world is governed. Now the expression there in verse 6, the sons of God, have been understood in other places in the Old Testament as, as angels or heavenly beings. Listen to Psalm 29.1. He says, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. That's that same word that's referred to as the sons of God. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. So we open, and again, I, I've never stood in the Oval Office, but I can picture, I think what, what the author is really trying to elicit in us is, is a picture of as, almost like how we would understand like the president in his Oval Office. And when he brings his cabinet into him, into the Oval Office, and he comes in and says, come on, guys, we need to talk about something. Or we need to talk, and it, maybe it was even something that's very normal. This is, at some level, we're, we're seeing heaven rip back a little bit, and we're seeing a scene that Job was not privy to. We're seeing God gathered in a big oval office at some level, just so we understand it, language that we would understand, and this is what he's doing. They came to present themselves, it says in verse 6. And that present themselves is basically they're attending a meeting and what we're about to see. Now listen to what he says in verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves. They came to attend before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. Now that phrase, came among them, is interesting. Because it's referring to what, how we understand as Satan, Right? He's a, he's a biblical character that we see, and he's, he's God's enemy. We see him in the garden. But this term here is actually a title. It's actually not his name. It's his title. It's what he does. The accuser. The adversary. The Satan. Every time Satan's name is lift, listed here, he's not referred to as a person necessarily. He's referred to by his title. What he does. He is the accuser. The adversary. 
He acts as one who prosecutes or presents evidence of impure motives. He seeks to lay before the Lord accusations of people on the earth. So the natural question would be, hold on a second. You're telling me that God, in some manifest way, is gathered with his, with his cabinet of, of heavenly beings, and there's Satan among him? We have a lot of questions to that. And I don't have all the answers today. But what I do want to, I do want to talk about different views of, of how Satan is viewed from other, from other worldviews. Because this is helpful. I think it will be helpful for us. Because I think these other views can begin to influence the biblical picture. And I want to talk about the first one. is polytheism. Now it's a very big word. Poly. Poly being the prefix for many. Theism just being the suffix for God. Many gods. That's all it is. And I've entitled it Ying and Yang. If you picture that little black and white symbol. Uh, it's basically though just saying many gods. And in this view... We, they would view Job and they would say, oh, well, what's happening here? Is God's just fighting with evil and it's this real give and take and evil comes and it takes a little and then, then God comes and takes back and it's all really about who's, who's going to strive for power here and influence in the world. This is, view, this is viewed this way from Buddhism, from Hinduism. I would even argue it's viewed in our own day, in our own culture, in animism. People are very afraid. They're always afraid of the, the evil. Look out for the evil because it's fighting with God. Now, this is an unbiblical view. Okay, Polytheism, very unbiblical view. Let me give you another one, though. It's called monism. Now, this one, it just means one. It's, just, it's singular. And what it is, uh, I've entitled it the circle of life. It's the circle of life. And its view is that there's really only one powerful being and everything else kind of circulates back to him. And it's it basically like he calls every shot. If I drop this pen, it's because he made it happen. Okay? So we need to talk about this one because this one, this one can actually slip in our biblical views. This is actually a very common view held within Islam. And so we need to be f- careful of these isms. Okay? We just need to be very cautious of them. So polytheism, monism, not monotheism, monism. But then we see the Bible's portrait. That's what I want us to see. So this is what I would call the biblical portrait, the Bible's portrait. And I've entitled it Sovereign and Governmental. Now a more biblical picture of of God is he who stands uniquely and sovereignly over all things outside of his created order, yet simultaneously interacts with it. I love what Christopher Ashe said. He, he goes on and he says, The Bible portrays for us a world that lies under the absolute supremacy and sovereignty of the creator, who has no rivals. Make sure we're clear on this. Who has no rivals, who is utterly unique, such that there is no God like him, no God lowercase g like him. And yet he does not govern the world as the sole supernatural power. He governs the world by the means of and through the agency of the multiplicity of supernatural powers, some of whom are evil. Okay, now that's the, it's very complicated, I think, what I'm saying right there. So you're telling me, Daniel, what you're probably thinking is you're telling me that God has control over Satan. And what I want to say is, yes, <laughs> Satan... <laughs> Martin Luther used to say that Satan is God's Satan. He's on a leash, like a little puppy, actually less than that. 
One commentator helpfully put out, you're probably wondering, well, like, why is he in this cabinet of other people? Well, uh, the one commentator said that within the British government, he pointed to, um, I thought it was very helpful. He said that within the British government, in Parliament, they have the people who are in charge. You always have somebody called Her Majesty's Loyal Opposition. So in, within British government, they have one person or one person who acts as the opposite party who comes and they act as the devil's advocate. So everything that's brought up, they come and they go the contrary position. So if they say it's raining outside, he's going to say it's sunshine. If he, say, if he says it's white, he says it's black. And honestly, so I, I think this position is very helpful. And what they do, and he goes on to describe it, he says they oppose the government, but they do so in an ultimate and unquestioned subservience to the crown. Their opposition is a necessary and good part of British government. They, they and themselves are devoted to trying to bring the government down. Yet in spite of themselves, their opposition serves a purpose in making the government better than it would be in the absence of opposition. And all that is to say is that God is the one who has ultimate, primary sovereignty over all things. So I want you to see how this works out. And I'm, I've entitled it Primary Causes sovereign, and secondary causes, governmental. So the primary causes, and, and if you want more on this, the, uh, put an article up on our website, you can check it out, or a blog, you can check it out. So what, the, what does the Bible mean by primary causes? Well, ultimately what it means is God is the one who has primary, ultimate authority over all things. He is infinitely all-powerful over every situation that exists. Now I'm going to say something. Nothing will come to pass in this world apart from his sovereign will over it. So that means that when what we see happening here is God allowing, he's giving permission for Satan to act. So God is the one ultimately who sets the limits. He says, you go this far and no further. He sets the limits and he also sets what will be done and what won't be done. So that's the primary cause. Here's the secondary cause. And what I'm calling it is governmental and secondary causes are the other actors in God's world, me and you. And actually, I would even go further. Satan would actually be categorized as a secondary cause. And secondary causes, so God oversees the world as the sovereign, first cause, the primary over everything. But the secondary causes, such as sinful people, such as demons, are the ones who are held ultimately responsible. Nowhere in all the scripture is any evil ever attributed to God. God is the one who holds ultimate responsibility. He sovereignly stands over all and yet simultaneously allows, governmentally gives certain things. And I love what Christopher Ash goes on to say about this. He says, he, the Satan, cannot touch a hair upon the back of a single camel that belongs to Job. Until he has divine permission. The Satan, the accuser, does what he is told. No more, no less. Under God's perfect sovereignty overall, God has granted and allowed Satan to harm Job's life. Now that probably boggles some of our minds. I hope it does. If it doesn't, if it doesn't there's probably something wrong. You're probably missing what I'm saying to you. Because it should. It's meant to. That's the point. We're meant to see this as... Wow. But now that you have this in your mind, go on to what the Lord says in verse 7. And the Lord said to Satan, 
From where have you come? Now notice something of this phrase. We're basically catching a glimpse of the sovereign Lord asking for a status report from his adversary. Let that sink in for a second. God's not like us. We, we maybe have enemies, but our adversary doesn't report to us. Literally, he's looking at him and saying, where have you come from? Tell me. Tell me all about it. God's not confused about Satan's whereabouts. Just like he wasn't confused where Adam was in the garden. He is questioning, he's, he, with his face toward Adam and winking toward us, like, hey, listen to this. This is really important, what he's about to say. He desires that we, are, we see what's about to come next. And listen to what he says. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. Satan is asserting something here to the sovereign Lord. That he's come and he's dominating and destroying things all over the earth. So when we hear Satan say, from going to and fro on the earth, we shouldn't hear, oh, he's just wandering around out for a stroll. No, no, no. He's walking around, crushing down, destroying all the things that God has allowed in his path. We should hear him as one trying to destroy God's people. Listen to just a couple other places in Scripture. 1 Peter 5, his, his job is roaring like a lion, looking for someone to devour. He blinds the minds of unbelievers, opposing God's work. So what he's saying here to God is a direct affront to a holy God. And the question I really want to ask is why didn't God just destroy him in that moment? That's a great question. I don't know. We'll have to get to that another day. But I think he is destroying him. See, this is, this is the beauty of the book of Job. In, in one, like, like, a, like you would take a laser with a cat and put it up on the wall. The cat runs after it. This is what we're about to see that God's doing to Satan. He's putting a laser up on the wall and just watching him dance around. And what we're going to see is this is exactly what, even the book of Job later on, we're going to hear that God has his hooks in Leviathan. You know what he means by that? He means that he has ultimate control over it. He says, you go here and nowhere else. Now listen to what he says. This is really important. So God's winking to us. He's saying we're, we're able to see behind the curtain for just a second. And this is what he says. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there's none like him on the earth. A blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Now I want you to notice three different things in this passage. In this verse, at least. Verse 8. Notice that Satan doesn't bring Job to God's attention. Did you notice that? The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? So God presents Job. If you're taking notes. God presents Job, simply asking, have you considered? God brought Job to Satan's attention. So we should note at this point, this is what is about to happen to Job is not purposeless. It's not meaningless. God has a purpose in what he's about to do. And notice the other thing. The second thing I want you to notice is what the Lord says of Job. He says, listen to what he says in verse 8. Have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? So this isn't just the author saying, yeah, Job was blameless. This is God himself saying he's blameless. He turns away from evil. He doesn't qualify it. He doesn't correct anything. He acknowledges it and confirms it. 
Here's the other thing I want you to see. Look at what he, how he, the title or what he describes Job as. He says, have you considered my servant? Now this, this term is used, my servant is used of Abraham. It's used of Moses. It's used of Jacob. It's used of David. It's used of Isaiah. And this term for servant is extremely important because it indicates that God himself acknowledges his humble service. And we're about to, and so I'm going to pause at that point with this point, and I'm going to bring it up at the very end. So, so Job is God's servant in that way. But look at what he goes on to say in verse 9. Verse 9, he says, Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. So Job, the one who's been praying that his children not curse God in their heart, Satan's accusation is, he'll curse you right to your face. So here's, there's two accusations in, this, in, this, in these verses. The first one is Satan accuses Job. Satan accuses Job, which is against his righteous character. The accusation is that Job is only blameless to gain something. He's insinuating that all his good deeds come from selfish motives. He's demanding that Job only uses the Lord to gain financially. His accusation is that Job Job doesn't really love you. Job doesn't love you at all. Satan is convinced that Job is fundamentally worshiping out of selfish motives. And notice, too, that Satan has already been trying to attack Job, but was completely unable. Look in verse 9. He says, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge of protection around him? How do you think he knew that? How do you think he knew that God had a hedge of protection around him? Well, (laughs) because he probably tried to attack him and realized, oh, yeah, I can't go over there. Let that sink in. The enemy of God, the literal enemy of God said, oh yeah, I can't go over there. <laughs> like, do you see? Do you see? Like, this is not just someone who's, who's able to run around and do whatever he pleases. This is someone who's on a leash. Here's the second accusation. The second accusation is toward God. So Satan accuses God now. So he first accuses Job, and now he questions the worthiness of worship. And I really, honestly, one day I, I want to ask the Lord, why didn't you just strike him dead? <laughs> why didn't you? But you will see, he's doing that. It's just not in the way we think he's going to do it. Questions the worthiness of worship. And the accusation toward God is simply, Job doesn't really love you. He's accusing God of blessing Job just so he'd appear to love him. He's, accused of God, he's accusing God of the highest form of blasphemy right here, what we're seeing. He's he's accusing God of of buying or purchasing Job's worship. He's accusing God that Job doesn't worship out of a heart of love. These two accusations can be distilled down to this simply. Job being a selfish hypocrite and God being a deceptive fraud. And now the author is really at this moment kind of slowing the car up for a second that we would all recognize the question he's asking us all to consider. Is God worthy to be loved? Is God worthy to be loved and deserving of our obedience for who he is 
irrespective of all other considerations. Let me ask that question again because it's very important. Is God worthy to be loved and deserving of our obedience for who he is, irrespective, irrespective, or it doesn't matter, of all other considerations? And this is where those two false gospels I mentioned last week, the prosperity gospel and the therapeutic gospel, they come in and tell a lie. And listen to the lie. The prosperity gospel says, here's the kind of questions it would ask. Is Job going to continue to worship when he has no prosperity? What does what happened, what's about to happen to Job literally cuts the entire legs out of the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel says if you come to Jesus, he will bless you. He will give you all sorts of things. And what we're about to see here is that God's about to take everything away from Job. And here's the second lie, the, the therapeutic gospel. Is Job going to continue to worship even when he cannot sense the presence of the Lord? Even when he's unsure of why his life is falling apart? Even when all, his, all he feels is heartache and despair? Will he continue to worship? Listen to what he goes on to say. The Lord goes on to say to, Job, to, to Satan. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch, stretch out your hand. So do you see it? Even in verse 12. This is not a Lord who's saying, oh no, don't, don't go after him, please. He's saying, you can touch him, you will go no further. You will not touch his body, you will only touch his possessions. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And now the scene's about to shift. That, so that was scene one, this heavenly picture of, of what was happening in the heavenly courtroom. Now we're going to shift scenes again. So scene two is Job's prosperity to be taken Scene two, Job's prosperity to be taken. Now, I remember where we were at last week, at the end of last week. It should be, in your mind, one of the most peaceful and tranquil situations. Job, a man of the East, who was the equivalent of the guy who had everything he could ever want. He had the white picket fence with the children, the lovely children, with all the possessions, the CEO that had his life in order celebrating and enjoying one another's company. And you can imagine Job just relaxed in his home, enjoying, thinking about, looking even out, maybe even on his children, and thinking, there they are. Here's all that I have when the unimaginable strikes. Listen to what verse 14 says. Now there was a day, verse 13, now there was a day when the sons, of, sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. You can imagine in that moment Job, his heart sinking within him. No. How could this have happened? So notice too, who's the one who attacked? Was Satan himself the one who came and attacked? No. The Sabaeans came and attacked. So what looked like a terrorist attack is actually an act of Satan. Listen to the next, what he goes on. Even before the guy is done talking and telling Job this, he hears, while he was yet speaking, verse 16, there came another, another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. So it's sheep by an act of God. Sheep and all the servants burned up, fire from heaven. 
And he's still sitting there just in shock. Oh my goodness, the Sabaeans, I have no more, I have no more oxen, I have no more servants. Then the sheep, oh my goodness, all the sheep. What are we going to do? Before he even could think about it, the next servant comes in. Verse 17, while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels. And we took them and struck down, and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Crushed, broken is Job, probably sitting on the floor because he can't handle all this. Verse 18, while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell upon, young, upon the young people. And they are dead and I alone have escaped to tell you. What the author is getting us to see is that everything that Job just had just implodes upon itself. It's the fourfold destruction that Job has nothing left. All that he has is taken. All that he has loved and cared for is gone. All in a moment. And now you can think for a minute, if something even similar happened to you, what would my response be? My response would probably sound like something like, I don't believe you. This is unbelievable. I need to see this for myself. But Job's response is a response of faith. That even when all hell breaks loose, trusting Christ allows us to kiss the wave that throws us against the rock of ages. So I want us to see now, we're going to look at Job's response in verses 20 through 22. We're going to look first at Job's example. And that first point there, the emotions of faith. The emotions of faith. I would argue that the prosperity gospel, more than any other false gospel, wants to say that the emotions of faith ought to be joy and happiness and jolliness. And this story just blows it out of the water. The emotions of faith. Listen to what Job did. He doesn't just say, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, well, don't worry, God will one day restore me at the resurrection. I should just go on with my life. No. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped. In a moment of great loss and great heartache, Job stands up, he gets up, he tears his clothing in a sign of anguish. He shaves his head in a sign of mourning. And he falls on the ground and he worships. These outward expressions are a sign of the deep grief and inner sorrow of unbelievable heartache. And I want you to notice something. Job's faith in no way alleviated the pain of the experience. He doesn't stand up and say, well, don't worry, I trust God, so it's okay. No. What does he say? He gets up, he tears his clothes, he shaves his head, and he worships. He has nothing else. He didn't try to force a smile, because that's what good Christians do. He came and he just throws himself on the floor. Which is actually against what some of what our own spirit of the age wants to tell us. 
And I'm calling it emoting, emoting or giving emotion without sin. This is where we get concepts like, it's okay. I can just hear pop psychology and pop, pop evangelicalism saying to Job, it's okay. It's okay to be angry at God. Just go be angry at God. Because you know God took all this from you, so you need to just go tell God that you're angry at Him. God's a big boy. You can vent your anger at Him. You, he, can, he can take it. God knows you're angry anyway. Just let it all out. I want to be very clear about something. It's never okay to be angry at God. And we see this even from the life of Job. If there's anyone that's ever able to be angry at God, it's Job. And what does he say? He shaves his head, he tears his clothes, and he's, he worships. To be angry at God is for you to sit in the judgment seat and say, God, you're wrong. You, don't, you shouldn't have done this. I love what Charles Spurgeon says here. He says, oh, dear friend, when your grief presses you to the very dust, worship there. When your grief presses you to the very dust, worship there. And that's exactly what we see the heart of faith, the heart of imputed righteousness to Job does. Then he goes on, here's the recognition of faith. What does faith recognize in that moment? What does it say? It, it, okay, that's what it emotes. It, it's anguish. It laments. And we're going to learn a lot about lamenting in chapter 3. But what about, what's, what's the recognition of faith? What's it say? Listen to what he goes on and says. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job acknowledges that he did not come into this world with anything and he won't leave in the exact same way. He came with, this is, the, this is the acknowledgement, the recognition of faith says, I came with nothing and I have nothing. I will one day have nothing. Both blessing and poverty are in the hand of God. Both wealth and lack are in his sovereign hand. He realized that all that he had was a gift from God. Job assumed no rights to his possession. I love then Spurgeon, he says in another place, he says, when many are alarmed, there are Christians with calm faces, patiently waiting their Father's will, whether it shall be to reach the port of heaven or to be spared to come again to the land into the midst of life's trials and struggles once more. They feel they are well cared for. They know that the storm has bits in its mouth, and God holds it in, and nothing can hurt them. Nothing can happen to them but what God permits. I want you to notice that last part. The the storm that Job is experiencing in this moment, the recognition of faith, is the storm has, has bits in its mouth. It can only go so far. Okay, now we're going to look at the response of faith. What's the response of faith say? Listen to what he goes on and says. Uh, Verse 21. He says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's the response of faith. The response of faith is, Blessed be the name of the Lord. And the author wants to be very clear. Job did nothing wrong here. 
No irreverent accusations, no bitter charges. As one commentator said, he says, God is blessed not only for the giving, but also in spite of the taking. Let that sink in. God is blessed not only for the giving, but also in spite of the taking. In every circumstance, he is to be honored. Thus, although Job knows nothing about Satan's involvement, he is in effect saying, Satan, you're wrong. God is still worthy of worship, even when life is hard. Now, in this moment, this is where most people just want to say, okay, and stop. We see the response of Job, and we all feel this ginormous weight. We should, at least. We should feel this response because we know oh, I wouldn't respond probably in that same way. But this is where Job is also prophetic. Meaning that we not only look at the example of Job, okay, we see the example of Job. Job was a righteous man whose faith produced these things. The emotions of faith, the recognition of faith, the response of faith. But Job is also prophetic. Job's telling us of someone who's coming, who's going to suffer Look back at verse 8 with me, real quick. This is very weird. This is the first time I've ever seen this. But look at what he says, the Lord says to Satan. So Satan responds responds to the Lord, and he says, From going to and fro on all the earth and walking upon it, everything since the Garden of Eden. This is what the Lord responds with. He says, Have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, who fears God and turns away from evil. Job is prophetic in the sense that he points forward to the one-day destruction of evil. It's just the way, the way that that destruction is going to come. And I've entitled it, The Father Presents the Son. The Father Presents the Son, Slaying the Dragon. Now, we've heard before, predicted in the scriptures, a verse like Genesis 3.15 that says, He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And I would argue that the entire book, the rest of what we're going to see in Job, is a prophetic picture of what the bruising of the heel will look like. Genesis 3.15, where he says, God promises Satan, He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. What we've seen God do here with Job is Job, God is setting out bait before Satan and saying, go after it. And he does. Just like the cat with the laser on the wall. Because Job is prefiguring the sufferings of Christ. He prefigures the sufferings of Christ. One author said this. He said, Satan's agenda does not set the purpose of Job's suffering. I want this to sit very, very clearly in your mind. Satan's agenda does not set the purpose of Job's suffering. And Job is more than a pawn in Satan's game of testing the limits of faith. Job is God's answer to Satan's power, or at least a prefigurement of his answer. And Job's trials are designed by God for this purpose. So Satan's agenda does not set the purposes here. No, no, no. Job is more than a pawn in Satan's game. Job is the answer to Satan's power. I want to point you to this one New Testament text so you see that Jesus truly is the one who's come to, to suffer on our behalf. 
Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 says this. He says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death, notice that, that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. God's answer to evil is Jesus. You know why people look at Job and they're like, man, this book's really confusing. Because they don't know the gospel. Because they don't have the sufferings of Christ. Because they don't see the Lord Jesus for who he is. That through death, death on a cross, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So we need to see the example of Job, but we need more than the example of Job. We need the prophetic nature of Job that points us to the one who has ultimately suffered. It is actually through the sufferings of Christ that Jesus destroyed the one who has the power of death. It is through the suffering. And as we recognize that it's through Christ's sufferings that we overcome, we understand and are able to live out the example. We can live out the example of faith like we've seen from Job as we trust Christ. So even when all hell breaks loose, trusting Christ allows us to kiss the wave that throws us against the rock of ages. I'm going to pray for us. I know we've went a little bit long. I'm going to pray for us and uh, close us out. But if you have any questions about today, I know today we've talked about a lot. We've talked about how the world is governed We've talked about many different, probably disputable matters. And I truly just want you to know that you can come talk to me. I I really want to hear from you, especially if you have questions or concerns. I really do want to hear from that. I want to pray for us now as we we close our service, as we close our time. uh, Just that we would consider, that that we would cling to the Lord Jesus. Who through death... Destroyed the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Okay. How about I pray for us? Father, thank you that we see in the sufferings of Job not a meaningless, pointless suffering, but a suffering that points us forward to the one who ultimately suffered. That ultimately points us forward to the one who through death defeated death. Lord Jesus, you are so good to us. By faith, God, would you give us the grace we need to respond like Job, like you, in the face of suffering, in the face of tragedy. God, do this in our hearts. We ask, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.